0: Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of Dan Oats Says So. Uh, tonight's guest has been patient enough to sit back down with me after he and I taped one, had current events and every other thing you could think of, sort of glitched that up and force us to redo it. Spencer Ackerman is a national security journalist whose time on the beat has taken him to Afghanistan, Iraq, Guantanamo Bay. He's done time at Wired, The Guardian. He's currently at the Daily Beast. In 2014, he was part of a team covering Snowden and covering the warrantless gathering of information by the NSA. Spencer Ackerman, thank you for doing this. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Dan. Absolutely. Now, now that we've sat there and we've done the inventory of your journalistic laurels, you are one of these guests that has the common thread that at least 90% of my people do. You are a punk rocker, sir. I did my time. Did your time. Were you a musician? <laughs>
1: Uh, I was an unaccomplished drummer okay. uh, I had but it does it doesn 't matter like I had uh a lot of fun playing with uh like bands made up with people who are still like some of the closest people in my life and so uh you would not have heard of any music that we made, like especially the further away you are from uh the new york city area uh but
0: eh. I think one of the great partnerss in life is when somebody not connected to your life and music asks you for details of it, and you know you're going to be rifling off things that are going to be met with a blank stare, you know? So I won't drive well, that particular nail through your foot. <laughs> this, you, you don't
1: have this burden, Dan, given that you
0: were in bands that people cared about. Well, to you and I, to a couple of hardcore kids, but out in the big world, that's microscopic. You know? No, we're, but yes, do, you know,
1: at most, dozens of people reluctantly watched me play. Thousands of people enthusiastically both watch and reminisce about you. Well, I am going to
0: disappoint your dozens by not doing much drill down on <laughs> um, and a thing that I know from past conversations is that you were part of the goings-on at ABC No Rio, that you were you were a frequenter of that club. There's a value in a value system and an ethos that ran through that. Do you think that 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 that's played a role in journalism for you? Um Absolutely, however much I fell short of
1: it. Um, Nevertheless, like I wouldn't be a journalist without my time in punk rock. It was never Mm -hmm. something that I thought I could do. Uh, It was never something I set out to do. It was never something I gave any consideration to at all until friends of mine in punk rock started making zines and letting me write for them. And then I did you know, one issue never to be repeated of my own, but I was super obsessive about that one issue. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that got good enough feedback to make me think like people who are telling me that I can tell a good story might be onto something. And literally because of an alt weekly in New York that someone I knew from punk rock wrote for, I started reading that paper really obsessively. It was called New York Press. Lots of things about it are deeply fucked up. Its legacy is messy. Uh, But I basically got as obsessed about that paper as I did about punk rock and, like, essentially uh, refused to take their no-you-can-intern-for-us not for for an answer uh, until I, like, found a mutual friend who let me open her mail. Uh, when she was the listings editor there, and then just started doing whatever else they would let me do until eventually uh, they like let me write a couple pieces for them and mm-hmm. it was sort of you know my course was kind of set from there
0: okay um, one thing I know uh, is that you had no formal education in journalism correct that 's right this um, was a so this was a at all steps in the ladder, this was a feel your way through it and fake it till you make it type thing. Or did you sort of self educate and do your own research? I mean, I'll tell you where I'm going with that is, I, I used to do a little bit of freelance work, yeah, okay. and somebody basically clubbed me over the head with the AP style book, which I had never even heard of before they did so. You know, so I mean, there there are tricks of the trade that if you go in blind can bite you on the neck. If you go, you know. Yeah, I
1: I can truthfully say. I didn't know what I was doing, but that also meant it didn't occur to me that I couldn't do it or that I needed a journalism degree um, to learn how to do it. I just started out like copying people uh, at New York Press uh, whose styles I liked and saw what they were interested in, and that turned me on to stuff. And so I tried to sort of take something of a pastiche of the way I wrote and the way they wrote and started experimenting with that. And then, you know, the most important thing you can do in journalism is one of the most, I think, you know, difficult things to do in life, which is like really listen to people uh, as well as kind of conquer uh, your anxiety about talking to strangers. And then eventually as you know, you go on, you, have to sort of force yourself um to be you know more and more impolite with demanding people tell you things in some cases and punk rock is very good practice for that um but you know it never it was probably not going to be in the cards for me to go to graduate school uh and particularly graduate school for journalism and that's that's a whole you know complicated thing also, because uh, it's easier for me to not do that because I'm white. Uh, Lots of really exceptional uh, non-white journalists, and especially black journalists, need to go to, you know, certain graduate programs in order to compensate for an entire industry that's just not inclined to take them seriously, or at least as seriously as the median white applicant for a job. So, You'll, you'll find, you know, as, as just part of like the general experience of being black in America, where people have to work, you know, twice as hard to get as far. Um, and, you know, that is the, the other side of, you know, graduate school. And I bring that up just to not give an impression that like, oh, no, you don't need graduate school at all. Like there are complicated circumstances out there um, that don't necessarily have to do uh, with money, but do have everything to do with racial caste and who gets access to what.
0: But what it does for me in hearing you say that, and that's not something that's come up between you and I before, is it exposes me to my own sort of naive romanticism about journalism. Because I would sit there and I would think, if there is one field, or almost as a as as a means of proof of proving themselves objective and, for lack of a cheesier term, woke, that there would be sort of an unspoken an unspoken wide-open-door policy for people of color, Um, that's naive of me, you know? And uh, I'm glad you raised that subject. (laughs) No, okay, so you raised an interesting point there.
1: Everything fucked up about the world is reflected in journalism. Okay. Uh, It is not by any means an equal field. It is, you know, the longer I'm in this business, the more disillusioned with it I get. But. No, uh, it's it's kind of a process of like starting out by telling yourself like ah no you know Chomsky isn't right this isn't all consent manufacture anyway Mm -hmm. Um, and then as you like get as far like into this stuff uh, I've been doing this for twenty years there's a part of me is like ah no he really had a point there and it's fucked up to be part of this thing the the positive side of it is compared to other uh, professions, mm-hmm. beca- what it is much easier uh, to to get in. Uh, the difficulty, meaning like you don't have to necessarily specialize in it. Um, the difficulty there is it is very hard, especially since uh, I started out doing this, given that it's an entirely different journalistic landscape and economic landscape uh, over the last 20 years. Uh, that it is still not easy, certainly not as easy as it was to get in, but very difficult after the first, like, rung or twos to progress really? beyond that. And that's exceptionally challenging. That's really a difficult thing. That's a failure of the industry. And that's something that, uh, in my opinion, not enough attention is paid uh, to t- tackling it. Uh, we're, you know, in in similar ways to the the way the outside world generally is, is cracking up like a lot of those in particular economic fractures are reflected very seriously in journalism where increasingly there is just sort of an ocean of fewer and fewer islands that are big enough to hire people to do uh, substantive, thorough, meaningful journalism and then everything else, you just sort of see, you know, the waters rise. And you wonder at what point you're going to be out of dry land.
0: Interesting. Um, my education never stops doing these, you know, talk to smart people, learn smart things. Um, one of my favorite things about the last time you and I talked was uh, I shared with you content from an old, old interview I did with an old, old friend, A.C. Thompson from ProPublica. And uh, first off, I love that I caught you off guard with exactly how dirty a punk rocker he is and the fact that he was an avail roadie and everything else. But for me, the real meat on the bone of that conversation was that I told you, he disclosed to me that one of the most toxic things in journalism was to have an agenda. And then one of the hardest things for him was to learn to operate without an agenda. You came back with arguably an opposite perspective about journalistic neutralism or journalistic integrity would you share that yeah thank you Um, journalistic neutrality
1: yes um but you know integrity is really the key here um first off it really did blow my mind that that ac uh was a scene kid uh for those who are not you know people who follow bylines in journalism Mm -hmm. ac thompson is a tremendous investigative reporter uh most recently he did pioneering work exposing uh, the military and in particular Marine Corps uh, connections to the leaders of the fascist group, Adam Boffin. Um, But I do disagree with with his perspective there. Uh, I don't think uh, journalistic neutrality is either possible nor desirable. Uh, I think I am derelict to you, the reader, if I conceal where I'm coming from. And even if I tried to do that, I would fail at it because you would be able to see where I'm coming from by reading the stories that I choose to report and paying attention to what I highlight. And, you know, if you were, you know, for those of you who would ask yourselves these, these things, uh, you would notice what I don't highlight. Or your focus, what, your focus yeah. becomes editorial in and of itself. That's right. Uh, when you make these choices, you are... You know inescapably uh showing subjectivity, I think there's nothing wrong with that. Our business uh reflected as it always does the consensus of the of of the times and dominant um social and economic uh agendas of the people who run the business and for a very long time uh those high bourgeois elements, particularly you know after the cold War. I'm uh, sorry, or you know, after the Second World War and through the Cold War, you know, the the, the 40s, 50s, uh, and 60s especially, uh, created when it professionalized journalism uh, and oh, took it from a from a trade to a profession, this idea of the view from nowhere, so-called journalistic objectivity, the idea ultimately degenerates into a really dangerous and I think toxic environment where you can show what everyone's perspective is, but you can't demonstrate to a reader what's true. And that is ultimately, you know, uh, has a bill that's coming due in the way mm-hmm. that uh, everyone, you know, for reasons, you know, good and bad, hates the, hates the media and hates, hates journalists on the right uh, you get mad at the euphemisms and the evasions, as well as what you know you consider a, a uniform point of view. To have a kind of bourgeois liberalism recapitulate itself to you and, and tell you that's sort of the only uh, reality out there. Um, there's a point to that; it's a Chomskyan point, which is something that I've, I've yet to find a, a conservative critic of the media uh, take seriously. But nevertheless, um, and then you know beyond that, uh, you really just stop yourself when, when, you know, you report stories that you believe are crucial uh, at the point, like really at the water's edge of saying uh, what reality is. And the, the flip side to that, the flip side to the, the, the alternative I'm spelling out is that you really have to do what I mentioned earlier, which is listen to people, people who, uh, do not have perspectives, do not have backgrounds, uh, and do not have experiences that you share or even necessarily understand. You have to go further if you are, you know, doing journalism that rejects objectivity uh, in the direction of rigor and in the direction of balance. And you need to police yourself as you do that, just as 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 other readers uh, will give you their feedback and that will police you. And you have, I think, a greater responsibility. Um, to listen uh, and second-guess yourself uh, and and ask yourself, you know, do a teardown of of stories after you publish them, particularly after, like, you know, an appropriate period of time has passed. And ask like, did I really capture that? Did I not? What did I miss? Um, I think the way that uh, mainstream media operates makes it a lot easier to avoid the responsibility of making the critical choices in both uh, rigor uh, and in presentation, uh, when it comes to covering these stories, and now you're in a situation where, um, for a variety of factors to include uh, a dominant, you know, motive of, of media narrative that, that I've discussed, uh, just being so widely distrusted, uh, mm-hmm. that we're in danger of losing a shared reality, which fundamentally is a perceptual issue rather than an objective fact about the world. Right.
0: Heavy, heavy, heavy ugly food for thought there. And,
1: and, and just to be clear, I don't think that that perspective is the only way of doing journalism. I just want to defend it as a legitimate way of doing journalism amongst
0: many others. There should be
1: one way of doing
0: this. I was thrilled to have you put it out there the last time we spoke, and I wasn't going to let you get away tonight without expanding on it. Um, I want to get into a few specific stories of yours and uh, spend a little time on them. And then I want to discuss a little bit about what you have coming up in the future. But before that, I want you to share with my viewers, listeners, whatever they are, the tattoo story you shared with me.
1: Okay. Uh, So uh, in 2008, um, no, I'm wrong, pardon me. Uh, In 2007, uh, I was doing uh, an embed uh, in Iraq and uh, I flew to Baghdad. And at the time in the green zone, uh, the US military command's press office, which was enormous, had essentially uh, a small dormitory uh, of basically just like a big room with a a bunch of cots for journalists who were sort of coming in, going out to and from embeds or elsewhere in Iraq to essentially crash. And part of that meant, you know, from, you know, in this room with reporters, uh, from all over the world, uh, you're, you're, you're going to be undressing in front of a lot of strange people. And, you know, so, yes. so, so it goes. Uh, and one day when I did that, uh, one of, uh, the other reporters who had turned out, uh, was from Sweden, uh, saw that, uh, across my shoulder blades, uh, I have a, a refused quote uh, from rather be dead. You know, the line is, but I'd rather be alive.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: I have not to that point, you know, found someone from outside of punk rock who like got that reference. So it was mm-hmm. deeply weird uh, to have a woman like, like come up to me after I like got, you know, changed from 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 out of the shower uh, and say like, excuse me, is that a refused lyric on your back? And I said, yeah. And she said like, would it be possible to interview you for a story? Like it's weird running into someone like right. from America, who likes Refused in you know the middle of Baghdad. So we we did that, and that was weird. Um, and then uh, a couple years later, uh, when I was in uh, an austere part of eastern Afghanistan uh, with a with a cavalry troop, um, I was uh, in the shower, and another guy, uh, shout to Ryan, uh, came up to me. And, like, asked me about the tattoo and then showed me that on his leg, I think it was, uh, he has a much better Refuse tattoo. Like, he has the original Refuse logo, which was, like, a fucking rad thing to see. Punk rock uh, is universal, and it will show up for you in the weirdest places.
0: I would say those those are amongst the weirdest. I do not have a comfortable experience. Um, Okay. Let's get into the story that we... uh, Talked about in the past. We're revisiting a lot of things because they so impressed me. I would not want them to reach people who are kind enough to listen to us. Um, the story while you were at Wired about anti Islamic bias in the FBI, can you share that with everybody? Uh, yeah. Uh, thanks
1: very much for asking about that story. I think it's important and uh, it sort of helps explain the atmosphere uh, that got us to today. Um, so in 2011, uh, I did a story about uh, a Freedom of Information Act uh, request showing that uh, an FBI counterterrorism training included some uh, like pretty blatantly racist uh, material about Islam, calling Muslims like 17th century savages. Things like, I'm sorry, 7th century savages, things like that. Um, I brought this up to the FBI, and they said, "Those are, you know, old documents. This is old news. You know, we've already dealt with that." Um, after I did that story, uh, people who were uh, upset by that uh, description from the FBI and who happened to know that the FBI was lying to me uh, provided me with documents showing uh, a counterterrorism training that had recently gotten underway that was even more Islamophobic than that. And this was a a training for junior agents at the beginnings of their career. What it was saying was that uh, there was less of a problem with Al Qaeda in the United States than with, and I quote, mainstream Muslims, that what the FBI, the premier federal law enforcement agency with tremendous power, uh, to spy on you and lock you up, uh, was instructing people that, instructing their agents that, uh, whatever manifested, you know, terrorism, uh, was going to happen in the United States started from the wellspring of a religion practiced by millions of Americans. And, uh, as this, you know, went on, I brought this to the FBI. They got very embarrassed by this uh, and, and started trying to say that, you know, they were on top of this. They were handling this. The class was just a one-time thing. And then through further research and further leaks, uh, the story just got bigger and bigger as it showed, like, no, there's all of this anti-Muslim material within the FBI, deeply inflammatory stuff, stuff saying that uh, the ultimate objective of Islam uh, was conquest and genocide. Uh, One from an FBI agent who, as far as I know, is still there, an analyst who has still not been reprimanded from this, Uh, his name is William Gothrop, and he's from Texas, uh, talking about Islam as the death star, Uh, really just fucked up stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And it prompted... Uh, what in some right-wing corners is still an infamous moment. Uh, I was later told uh, by one of uh, the leading Islamophobes in the United States, uh, an asshole named Robert Spencer, that I was responsible uh, for the Boston Marathon bombing because my reporting contributed uh, to the Obama administration ordering the shit. Wow, I out did, of I the did not know. I did not know about this facet yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, this this person who dared to say that I bore responsibility for the Boston Marathon bombing is cited more his work cited more than sixty times in the manifesto of Anders Breivik, who murdered children in
0: Norway. Anyway. Um petty stuff. Uh let's move on to uh the Pulitzer moment, but more so Really, I think you'll end up editorializing if I just kind of turn you loose on mm. Snowden and on the NSA, which is what I would like. Yes, well, uh, so basically uh, I,
1: I uh, had a bit part uh, in the Snowden story. Uh, I was the newly hired uh, national security editor for the Guardian, it was a fancy title. It just meant I was a national security reporter. Um, uh, right, Why would you like, disclose that? <laughs> again, this, 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 this is one of those things in journalism where like, lots of shit is just entirely made up. Uh, no. they're, 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 what counts as editors uh, in mm. different places is not a standardized thing. Everyone yeah. is just basically flying blind in a lot of really important respects everywhere you work like seems like a fanzine like nothing seems professional (laughs) everything seems crazy even if you're working at you know a global news outlet like the guardian um i had just started uh i got there they asked me if i could move my my higher date up slightly so i could as they put it you know come to an extra orientation i thought like okay the british are you know, really bureaucratic, I guess, so I'll do that. And in fact, it was mm-hmm. covered to let me know that an extraordinary thing had happened uh, thanks to uh, uh, Laura Poitras, Glenn Greenwald. Uh, Glenn, Glenn was at the time uh, a columnist for The Guardian. Uh, we had uh, the most significant leak in the history of the NSA. Uh, this was uh, the stories that in 2013 uh, and 14, Uh, ended up exposing uh, not just uh, warrantless surveillance on Americans, but uh, the shape of the elephant in terms of the global dragnet for surveillance that uh, the NSA constructed after 9-11. And it filled in crucial gaps in in our knowledge, particularly about uh, the interplay uh, between the NSA, uh, American empire, and what uh, the Harvard... Business School Professor Emerita uh, Shoshana Zuboff uh, calls surveillance capitalism, the current dominant economic model of essentially how to commodify and monetize the data that you and I are are pushed into uh, producing as sort of the cost of living in the 20th century to include this very moment. Um, So we learned a tremendous amount about how uh, in practice uh, the NSA collects pretty much every uh, electronic signal that it can find a legal rationale to collect. And regardless of of how constitutional that is or is not, and usually is not, uh, regardless of the legal and uh, political, in particular legislative and judicial constraints uh, that uh, people thought the NSA uh, was operating under, it turns out that in an environment of deep secrecy and supreme technological uh, capability and esoteric knowledge, the NSA will decide for itself uh, what its boundaries are. So that was, in a nutshell, uh, what the Snowden story is about. Uh, To put it as as simply as possible, the NSA has, you know, along with uh, surveillance capitalism, put us in a circumstance in which privacy uh, is increasingly
0: theoretical. Does, not, does knowing that, does seeing the great and powerful laws behind the curtain uh, create a certain wariness or a different type of caution in the life of a reporter that maybe you didn't exercise beforehand? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it taught me um, that I really didn't
1: understand just how insecure my data was, how insecure my communications uh, with sources who I had sworn to protect, uh, in fact, was, and how uh, if I did not change the way I operated, there was no guarantee uh, that all of my information, all of uh, my confidential conversations could be discovered, weaponized, used against the people uh, who had tried to provide me with information to tell the public uh, what they thought the public desperately needed to know. Um, and so that just becomes... Uh, kind of a constant struggle and what I would consider a useful paranoia.
0: It seems to me that making a career out of your particular sphere of focus, your area of of expertise or effort, couldn't help but breed kind of a constantly looking over your shoulder type personality. Is that true? Or have you been able to escape that?
1: No, no. Uh, Other people are, are going to be able to escape that, but not me uh, i've never understood uh how like when Siegel and Schuster came up with Superman uh, mm-hmm. they decided that a reporter would be mild mannered uh, i know i I know some i don't know many uh the the you know best reporters I know are absolute neurotics um you know people who suffer from manic depression mm-hmm. um, People who are, are you know trying to, to take control of their lives uh with the existential anxiety of how weighty that in fact is. Um a lot of people um who I know from from, from journalism have to some degree or other intersected with punk rock. Um there are there are scene kids out there uh who do this uh and, and that's always cool to see. Um others have uh, you know enough of a of a conversant um, relationship with punk rock but that 's still fun um, but yeah, uh always looking over your shoulder uh, you know if I publish something um, overnight like if if uh, if I wrap if I, if I something and I know it 's going to publish in, you know in the morning or a couple of days from now, those are going to be sleepless nights for me uh, uh-huh. until uh, until that publishes. I've been doing this for 20 years and that happens every single time. And I am by no means the only reporter uh, who experiences that. Uh, early on, uh, someone who had been uh, very generous to me uh, named John B. Judas um, shared, uh, he, was in, he was in his 60s when I, when I started doing this. Uh, and he let me know after we shared a byline once, I was 23, uh, and I told him uh, how, like, freaked out I was getting, uh, because, like, this was one of, you know, my first, if not my actual first cover story, uh, and, you know, that w- I was just, like, shitting bricks that I had gotten something wrong and didn't realize it, or there was, you know, something I wasn't um, properly either apprehending or presenting right. And he told me, and I remember this uh, to this day, that if I was going to be a journalist and I was going to, you know, last in this business, I was going to have to learn to live with a certain low-grade anxiety. And I think he and I have a different understanding of what low-grade means. (laughs) Uh,
0: So, yeah. Listen, I think one of the big glaring flaws in my interviewing style If a person gives me an in to just explore the psycho babble and, you know, peel away their forehead and look at how their brain works. Go ahead. I'll I'll go all the way down there. But I don't want to do that. I don't think this can be the last time I interview. I don't want to do that with the remainder of this because you, sir, are working on a book. Yes, thank you very much for bringing that up. Yeah, I would like you to spend some time on that before we get the hell out. All right. Thank you, Dan. Uh,
1: If my, you know, I said this the last time, but I'm going to say this. Uh, if my 17-year-old self uh, could see me now. Uh, that's that's pretty amazing. Thank you very much for, for being interested in talking uh, about my, my boring career at all.
0: Um, and self-deprecation will serve you well, sir, but I think it's hogwash. Anyway, go on. Anyway, um, uh,
1: next May, uh, I'm going to publish a book called Reign of Terror. Uh, the book is going to be uh, an extended uh, narrative about uh, how the war on terror and the politics that fueled the the war and that the war in turn unleashes and intensifies becomes a big part of the story uh, for how we get to the America we live in now, uh, where you know we 're going to have an election a few days after uh, this airs, and many people. Uh, in the national security world are expecting some degree of violence, are bracing for it. Um, And in general, uh, the story of how we get here, how we get to Donald Trump in particular, uh, what Donald Trump is a symptom of and what Donald Trump exploits uh, is this attitude of fear and this circumstance of the increasing militarization of American life that occurs and intensifies in a context of a war the United States can never win nor get its way out of. And by never get its way out of, I don't mean uh, that there's an impossibility about it. I mean that various political circumstances uh, conspire to make politicians decide that the safest course of action is to continue the wars rather than end them, causing an enormous, enormous disconnect with not just uh, the broader population uh, of the United States, both both left and right, uh, who hate the wars, uh, but intensify uh, the broader geopolitical circumstances, essentially American empire, that make divesting yourself of an imperial position something that uh, politicians try to avoid and fear uh, doing in case uh, they're demagogued uh, for doing that, it is a toxic circumstance. Uh, it is one that keeps the United States uh, murdering people uh, around the globe, declaring that uh, as an exclusively American prerogative, uh, and bringing the United States into a circumstance where it invites not just terror attacks, but essentially. Uh, the desecration of what it says are its ideals and uh, the plunder of its wealth upward. Uh, so that's the book. Um, we're going to be, you know, over the course of, of nine chapters, also talking about um, all of the, the, the relevant episodes in the war on terror, all of the infamous moments uh, from uh, detention uh, to torture uh, to mass surveillance uh, to outright war that sort of keep ratcheting uh, in the direction uh, of fascism.
0: light, breezy stuff. Okay.
1: It Um, is an uplifting book. Uh, It's going to be a holiday read uh, going forward, a seasonal uh, story that I think, you know, you're going to want to, you know, pass down to your children, you know, during
0: tender moments. So you walked right into something. I couldn't decide if I was going to ask or not. Now I'm going to ask it. You are a family man, yeah?
1: I am yes. I am. I am. I am uh, at this point uh, a daughter guy. Mm-hmm. I, I I
0: think is how to describe myself. Okay. Well, does that ever give you pause in your chosen career? The implications of your work ever make you think about make you think about the you know the life at home and how you're impacting it. I don't understand things well enough to know if that's a dumb question. It just at this level of elevation it occurs. It's it's not a, it's not a dumb question at all. Okay. We having a connectivity issue here. Yeah, but I think it's resolved itself. Do you hear me? All righty. So the family man question.
1: Yeah. No. Um, in terms of uh safety uh, during times when uh, reporters uh, are increasingly, you know, under threat, uh, I try and take you know necessary precautions. Um, <laughs> Including uh, certain amounts of, of, of what I do and don't uh, feel comfortable uh, putting on the internet uh, concerning my family, but also, you know, recognizing that, like, this is a source of of not just joy, but motivation in my life. Um, uh, my daughter is deeply uh, punk rock. Uh, she's very goth. Uh, she said the other day, and she is an amazing uh, freestylist. Um, yeah. She makes up songs. Uh, She will, if she stumbles over words, she'll just, you know, make up enough, essentially scratch vocal uh, so she can continue the rhythm until she gets comfortable figuring out uh, what she's going to say. Um, And she said uh, to her mother the other day uh, that she wants to be a singer, but she doesn't want to be a rock star. And she's five years old.
0: (laughs) The very goth, very punk rock, lyrically gifted five-year-old. That may uh, that, that may have something to do with why her father can speak at infinitum. Yeah, I, uh, I'm 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 seeing a bloodline here. Um, well, listen, I like that as a note to wrap on Spencer. I cannot thank you enough for your patience for your patience with this process. Um, you know damn well I'm going to bug you again as current events inspire it. But for now, I'd like to say everybody that is episode eighteen of Nano CISO and Spencer Ackerman. Thank you so much.
1: Dan, uh, the pleasure's all mine. Uh, I can't believe I'm doing the Dan O'Mahony podcast. Uh, That is crazy. Uh, It's been uh, uh, an enormous, enormous thrill. Uh, So, yeah, anytime,
0: uh, it it would be my pleasure. People are going to make fun of me for that, sir. Thank you. (laughs) doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. All right, take care, Spencer. You too, Dan. See you.